The same team that brought you speech recognition technology brings you Sense. It's a little orange box that connects to your electric panel and samples power over a million times per second. Sense lets you know what devices are on in your home and how much energy they're using so you can save money and see what's happening all from your smartphone. To find out more, visit sense.com slash energy gang. That's S-E-N-S-E, sense.com slash energy gang. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. Distributed carbon capture and storage, floating offshore wind, gas to hydrogen. This is where Statoil, the world's largest operator of offshore oil and gas rigs, sees the future of energy. This week, we've got Statoil's executive in charge of those low-carbon bets here with us to talk about why. Then we're going to talk about the last two riveting days of Mark Zuckerberg's testimony on Capitol Hill. Nah, I'm just kidding. We're going to talk about FERC. While members of Congress were trying to figure out whether they should regulate Facebook, energy experts were a few blocks away trying to figure out how to regulate bundled distributed energy in wholesale markets. No, not quite as headline grabbing, but really, really important to how batteries, solar, real-time efficiency, and microgrids are going to play in regional markets. Catherine was at the FERC event for two days this week, and since she wasn't posting about it on Facebook, we're just going to have to get it straight from her. Catherine is the chair of 38 North Solutions. How was your week? Great. You know, it was my favorite thing. My favorite thing in the world was to be sitting in a FERC technical conference. (laughs) Jigger Shaw is the president of Generate Capital, based just outside of D.C. How's that uh, solar and battery installation going since we last talked? It's good. We're having trouble with the blockchain smart grid internet piece of it. No, I'm just kidding. I just I just stumbled onto the latest episode of the interchange. Yeah, we're we're talking about blockchain a lot over there. Who knows? Maybe it'll come up in this conversation. You've got to get your neighbors to invest in similar systems that generate capital jigger and figure out how to aggregate those systems once FERC creates rules. <laughs> oh gosh. Today What does the future of energy look like for a major oil and gas company? It's uh, no secret for listeners of this show that Jigger is highly critical of oil and gas companies for their approach to low or no carbon energy. If you'll remember back, he explicitly told me on stage last year that I was talking BS for lauding some recent activity among oil and gas firms that were getting into batteries, solar, um, CCS, and other low carbon businesses. And when compared to the imminence and severity of the climate change threat, it's understandable that why Jigger and others have that sentiment. That said, Large fossil energy companies like Norway's Statoil are getting serious about the transition, and they're putting money behind some of the coolest tech areas like novel approaches to offshore wind and various kinds of carbon capture. So let's turn to an executive overseeing those areas. Stephen Bull is the senior vice president of wind and low carbon development at Statoil. Statoil is, of course, one of the top oil and gas producers in the world, and it is uh, two thirds owned by the Norwegian government. Stephen comes to us from uh, his hotel room in London. He's usually in Oslo, Norway. Stephen, welcome. Hi, Stephen. Thanks very much. Great to be here. Well, we want to talk about a couple of things. One is um, just some of the areas of emerging tech you're investing in and why. And the other is scale. Is it enough? And I think that brings us to some of the bigger picture questions that we've debated a lot on this show and that we hear others talking about. So let's begin with this. What exactly does your low or no carbon portfolio look like these days? Well, Stephen, currently we're we're developing a lot within the offshore wind space. Clearly, that's the strategic goal for us. Um, We have this offshore wind 
background linked to our oil and gas operations. You know, we do big projects in difficult conditions offshore. So it links to us that we, we're going to develop in that area. We've been developing this over since 2009 and really sort of up until this time at the moment, we've got about one gigawatt in development or production. And uh, we've been working over the last three years pretty diligently to get around six gigawatts ready in the pipeline for new projects. That's just the wind. And then we have some low carbon opportunities for hydrogen as well, which we're working through too. So wind is a pretty interesting part of your portfolio because you've developed a um, first a, a floating offshore prototype and now a scaled up version off the coast of Scotland, a, a floating offshore wind farm. You're thinking about integrating batteries with that wind farm. Um, why floating offshore wind? Well, this is kind of a bit of a labor of love, this, uh, this particular project. I mean, the, the backstory is actually in 2001, some of our engineers were, you know, they're actually sailing in the Oslo Fjord. And they noticed a marker boy floating with a flag on it for, uh, for indicating which direction to go. And they were working on some onshore wind at the time. I thought, you know what, if we could get one of those and stick a turbine on it, you know, we could do offshore wind in Norway. And the reason the floating wind is because the, the water depths in Norway are incredibly deep. I mean, they go straight off the shelf and they go straight down 100 meters, 200, 300 in, in a really short space of time. So what we did develop here is something called High Wind Demo. And it's a 2.3 megawatt turbine off the west coast of Norway. It's in 200 meter water depths. And it's the most mature floating wind concept you can see now. We've taken that over to now into Scotland, 30 megawatt uh, park that we've developed. And, and we see this as a you know, great opportunity for the future as well to really come beyond these shallow water offshore wind developments that you see at the moment. For I think it was a month or two, please remind me the time frame, the, the high wind floating offshore project saw a capacity factor of 65%. And that beats out a lot of thermal generation here in the United States, depending on the season, which is pretty remarkable. Can you talk about the experience thus far with that project? Sure, I can actually uh, give you the latest statistics. We're up to 67% now on the capacity factor for, for floating wind, you know, on High Wind Scotland project. And you now again, this is it's really exciting for us because we're testing this technology now. Key one about it, how do we get the capacity factor up the whole time? The key one is actually the pitching mechanism. We're adjusting individually the blades so that we don't sort of actually see any gyrating forces in the, uh, in the whole of the substructure itself and the turbine. So making this upright, making it always available for wind is you know something that we've been testing out for quite a long time with the demo. So this is really proving up the concept. So we're, we're really excited. Okay, so let's move to carbon capture and storage, carbon capture and sequestration. Um, this is an area that is um, very attractive to Statoil. You've been you've been uh, operating CCS projects for quite some time. What is the extent of what you're doing in the CCS area? Sure, you know, I suppose this is Catherine's territory on the policy side here. But you know, Norway's had a, an offshore CO two tax uh, for quite a long time, actually, for over twenty two years. Roughly, that that cost about fifty five dollars uh, per ton offshore now for CO two. So really, in any of these big projects where we have a lot of CO2 content to them, you know, we really need to sequester that as, as much as possible to be in the money. Uh, we've got two projects that we do this with. One is Schleipner, which is a gas condensate field, and one is Snowvit, which is an LNG plant. And, and just those alone, they, they, I mean, they capture 1.3 million tonnes per year. So it's, it's pretty considerable. We've stored over 23 million tonnes already. So this is a, you know, a story for ourselves, you know, competence that we, we think we really have. And it, we think it's something that is scalable. 
the, the tricky thing with CCS is, you know, there's only 22 projects in the world with CCS, most of them related to uh, enhanced oil recovery. What we need to do, you know, to just like the renewable side of things, we've got to get to the whole deployment level of things. And that really comes down to the capture part. We can scale up the storage, you know, that's no problem. We can get the volume and you get economies of scale there. But to try and get sort of smaller scale decentralized CO2 capture, that's the key one for it. And we've got a, we've got a little project in Norway we're working on at the moment on that. And isn't it important to also have the utilization type so you can tap into other value streams? Yeah, I think that really is important too. I think, you know, we've seen this in kind of the aggregates and building industry, you know, creating kind of bricks and cement and potentially petrochemicals and other products or fish food, believe it or not, as well, using CO2. And they don't have the scale, obviously, as the large. I mean, you, scaling at 1.3 million tons for, for use is, is pretty, you know, it's going to be tough to do. But the key one is that if you're driving up the CO2 price, then it adds to this. Plus, you could get, you know, CO2 you know, use really linked to the industry as well. And this is one of the reasons that we're looking at this in Norway is that we, if we, there's a project that we're working on at the moment, which is pretty cool. It's with the Norwegian government, uh, Shell, Total and Gasnova as well uh, from, uh, from Norway. And it's looking at CO2 capture from cement, fertilizer and household waste. And the idea is this is a smaller scale, decentralized capture. We put them onto ships. We ship it over to the west coast of Norway and we put it two kilometers down into a reservoir. But what's exciting about this one is it, it could op- offer opportunities for industrial you know, CO2-free cement. It could offer for you know low CO2 emissions fertilizer. It could open up a new market for these products. So I guess you know what I'm trying to figure out is that I, I get the whole EOR piece of this, this enhanced oil recovery piece, but I I'm curious whether you really think that we can save gigatons of carbon through enhanced oil recovery. It does feel like. We do have to go into cements and other areas to be able to actually have CCS be something that registers on the scale. Yeah, you know, you're right, Keith. You know, I think the, the gigatons that we see, I mean, you guys probably saw the whole Shell Sky scenario, which uh, they looked at, you know, the, the back casting, they saw an amazing amount of solar peaking off in oil and gas. But what they had in there is that you need 10,000 CCS units. So this is 10,000 Schleipners, the equivalent of what we have in Norway. Uh, coming in by 2050 we're on 22 today so you know getting to that level of deployment you know it's we've got to try and find some volume in this thing um you know we don't do eor with these two we actually store the co2 on operations we have from norway there is a potential potentially in the future for this but i think the key one is to try and find the right incentive structures work with governments to actually start making this on the industrial level first. So that's where we, you know, we really want to look at the industrial sector first as much as we can. Cement being a huge, uh, you know, emitter of CO2 as well. And Stephen, one of the things that I have been always focused on with renewables first, and now if you look at CCUS, is this issue of trying to get a handle on what's the potential. So it looked like the oil and gas climate initiative, one of the first projects is resource assessment. And it strikes me that before you can begin to understand what the impact might be, you need to figure out the, you know, how to assess the resource. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I think it is. It's, you know, looking at the resources, one thing, but trying to find a business case for this, that's the bit, you know, we're all struggling with. You know, there is there is no clear path to a business case for, for CCS. You know, it's just as simple as that. You have to have, you know, a tax there or it has to be some incentive structure. But from, you know, kind of the, the way we see it from our point of view is that we, we see this as a potential for, for example, CCS for our side is that we could, you know, potentially 
take the CO2 out of our methane for, for CH4 and our natural gas stream and actually sort of potentially market a pure hydrogen product. Now, that hydrogen product could be used for you know, shipping, transportation, if you liquefy it, or you could easily use it in a CCGT as well, you know, uh, for any, any gas turbine, you know, if you have a fairly modern one as well. In addition, you could use that to spike into existing natural gas as well. So that, that's, uh, I think, looking for these new market potentials is something for us, but it's, it's first-of-a-kind stuff. So, you know, I wanted to back up for a second and talk a little bit about Statoil's approach. I mean, it does seem like both the floating offshore wind and the CCS really comes out of your, you know, sort of engineering prowess. I mean, both of these technologies are quite complicated and quite difficult to, you know, frankly, not just discover new approaches to, but actually just doing due diligence on other parties' approaches. Is that... Is that what you guys are using as your sort of measuring stick for whether you guys get involved in new energy projects? You know, you, you got to start somewhere, Jigga. You know, and I think from you know, Stato would it builds on what we have. We feel as we have a competitive advantage, and we, we have that within CCS, and we think we have that within offshore wind, particularly floating wind as well. But you know, we, we're on this journey for ourselves. So we we have a solar project in Brazil, 162 megawatts in right in the northeast of Brazil, together with Scartec Solar from uh, from Norway. And this really is kind of you know testing ourselves. You know, do, can we make this happen? You know, how will we actually build this ourselves in the future if we were going to do it on our own? We're looking at other areas as well. You know, if we, I mentioned some of the hydrogen. Uh, initiatives that are going on, but we, we need to start, you know, putting different things in our toolbox. One of those actually is energy storage, where we have the Batwind project in Scotland linked to Highwind Scotland, our floating wind park. And then again, you know, we don't have a lot of that competence in-house to develop these kind of solutions. So, you know, we'll work with vendors and the supply chain to do it, but also, you know, bringing in new people and, and new competencies, which we never had before. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. I just, you know, for me, it's all about trying to figure out how to get to gigatons of carbon reduction, right? I just, I, I feel like when you think about the shell sky scenario or other, other things, I think that, you know, what it tells you is that business as usual just isn't going to get us there fast enough. So, you know, what I'm looking for the oil companies to do is not just play around with, you know, innovations, but actually commit to gigaton scale reductions and make a tidy profit doing it, right? And, and actually putting their considerable assets to the table. Like, for instance, it's always been shocking to me how uh, the oil companies have never really been, um, you know, real leaders in geothermal, even though they have extraordinary capabilities on subsurface and drilling and fracking and other technologies that are required to make that business successful. Yeah. You know, again, it's the strategic choices for us. We're, we're trying to find areas where we can have scalability. So, you know, to do smaller, you know, decentralized uh, you know we're, we're not going to do like rooftop solar in texas you know that's like that that markets you know that's for other people but to do the sort of large-scale ones and let me give a couple examples here we've got this dogger bank project in the uk uh, working on it at the moment this you know hopefully we can be ready for the next round in the uk the auction round this is uh, you know 3.6 gigawatts so it's the largest consented wind farm in the world the total potential in that whole area <clears throat> is about you know 10 gigawatts in total. So it's, you know, in a, in a potential has to be a hub. So if you, you know, you can put interconnectors here linked to Norway or to the Netherlands or Denmark, you can, you know, have an operations maintenance base here. I mean, we're talking like a mega hub in the middle of the North Sea. And that sort of crazy big thinking is, um, it's kind of stuff that we actually really enjoy doing because, you know, it's, we do this in oil and gas anyway. So it's just to sort of extend ourselves with that competence and tolerating the risks 
and you know putting this into the renewables context. So Stephen, I wanted to ask about wanted to get back to policy because you are it sounds like you're thinking strategically about where those policy drivers are and I see the US as having this tremendous offshore resource and yet we are not getting a carbon tax anytime soon. We don't have any federal policy. Our our wind and solar credits are going to decline and phase out. Um, so how, when you look at the U.S., are you thinking more on about state policy or is policy less of a factor? How do you see the U.S. as a market? So we, you know, we're already pretty deep in the U.S. and we actually have a thousand employees in the U.S. working on oil and gas, you know, from the Bucknell went down to Eaglefoot and the Gulf of Mexico. So, you know, we've got a, a really great base there already. And, and what we're building from in that one is this New York project. It's called Empire Wind. And this is one of the, you know, we went in there for a bid. We bid for uh, with the Department of Interior from Boehm for $42 million off, you know, potential for one gigawatt off the coast of Long Island. And we have the team in there, you know, in New York working on that currently to develop this. And from a state point of view, I mean, the New York state has been extremely positive to developing this. You know, I know Jigger knows a lot about this, you know, with his role in NYSERDA. But this is, you know, something from a state side. We've, we've always seen it from a state point of view. We don't really look for, you know, a federal tax credit or anything else or, or and even, you know, CO2 taxes. You know, we think the state driven is, is important. We see this in Massachusetts as well, another attractive place. And I think, again, solving for those local issues, you know, grid issues or infrastructure investment issues or to avoid massive HVDC lines going all the way from, you know, New York all the way to Canada. You know, I think it solves for certain things here. So, you know, we're bullish on the on the US market, you know, because of that state support. And on the other hand, you know, Department of Interior is still offering new areas. You know, we think that will continue. You know, they'll offer in new acreage and hopefully more in California as well. So in terms of actually, you know, taking leadership globally, what more do you think the oil companies have to do to demonstrate their leadership. I mean, you know, we had the Bloomberg New Energy Finance Conference this week, and, you know, there were a tremendous amount of stats that came about where, you know, I guess electric vehicles hit a million vehicles sold, I guess, in, you know, their first million in the first 20 years, and then the last million occurred in the last year, and then now it looks like, you know, each million after that seems like it's happening faster and faster. Norway's already doing a ton of electric vehicles, and I guess I'm just curious about... You know, where do you think the oil companies fit in now that the coal industry seems like it's starting, you know, to wane? You know, I mean, folks have oil and gas in their sites. Yeah, they do. I mean, you know, we, each each company has its own context. And um, and all things, you know, we talked about a bit like Beyond Petroleum and those things. And we had a discussion with, uh, with Nick Butler from the FT. And, you know, as you know, Jigger, he's, his background is as heading up strategy in, uh, in BP at the time of the Beyond Petroleum. And it was an interesting discussion about, you know, where is the future of oil and gas majors and his view of this you know they've got three choices you can do the harvest or you do dabble or you transform and you know harvest is obviously you run the business into the sand it's very profitable you pay dividends you buy your shares back and you know and everyone's happy from a norwegian point of view that is not going to fly for statol and it's not the kind of thing that great companies do you know we're here part of the you know we're three quarters owned by the norwegian state and the dabble bit where you you know get the second mover advantage potentially buy something and sit on the fence and observe what's going on or, or just, you know, leave a business to its own. That's one choice as well. I don't know. And then there's the transform side. And I think the transform side doesn't mean you have to go completely, you know, you can't control or delete your business model, at least uh, not for a, a major oil and gas company. But you can set a clear strategic direction. And I feel, at least we hope, 
that that's clear with Statog, where there's clear strategic direction. We're moving towards, you know, being a broad energy company. Um, you know, we invest 15 to 20 percent of our capital expenditure within new energy solutions. We have roadmaps for climate change, you know, in all our business areas. I mean, there's a ton of initiatives going on. But I know you're going to say, OK, you know, what are you spending the money on? But just, uh, you know, we, we've spent even just when we established the new energy solutions unit within Stato, we spent 4.2 billion on that unit on FID projects. And that goes from, you know, offshore wind projects all the way to solar to New York lease, bat wind, or lots of hydrogen work as well. And actually, it's roughly about the same money as what we spent on exploration in that period as well. So put it in that perspective, you know, there's more cash coming in. But I think, you know, we're only getting started. We think there's a lot more to go. What excites you most in your low carbon portfolio? I mean, what do you think is going to explode and change the world most when you look at what you're investing in? I think the floating wind is going to have great potential. I really do. You know, I think uh, even just the European area, you look at this one, 80% of the total best resources in Europe, offshore wind, are in water depths of over 60 to 70 meters. So floating wind, I think, has got fantastic potential. And I'm super excited by, you know, the, the, the CCUS part. I want to see more utilization. love to see some more deal flow coming on and companies that are making innovation within CO2 solutions. So I think, you know, those two and those two really do make a big difference, I think, when it comes to the innovation side. So, um, you know, we're positive. And, you know, since we established this business, New Energy Solutions, you know, we, it's really kind of captured the attention of everyone in the oil and gas side as well. So it's a good story for us, I think, internally as well. Yeah, the last two years have brought some pretty extraordinary pricing and development trends in offshore wind. So it's um, it's pretty exciting space to watch. Stephen Bull is the Senior Vice President of Wind and Low Carbon Development at Statoil. He joined us from London. Thanks a lot, Stephen. Really appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Stephen. Thanks, Jiga. Thanks, Catherine. Really enjoyed it. The Energy Gang is supported by Sense. Sense lets you keep tabs on your home, save energy, and make the most of your solar investment. The same team that brought speech recognition technology to market is now focused on the home. Sense uses machine learning technology to identify the unique electrical signatures of your individual devices. Those real-time insights can let you know when your kids got home, whether the sump pump is running, or whether you left the iron on. And if you've got solar, it's even more valuable. You can compare whole home energy use and solar production side-by-side, all with no monthly fee. For solar installers that want to help customers make the most of their solar investment, or for utilities that are looking to deliver more holistic energy services, Sense can help there too. It's a win-win-win. To find out more about what Sense can do for you, visit sense.com slash energy gang. That's sense, S-E-N-S-E, sense.com slash energy gang. What we're about to talk about next may seem, well, a little dry. But make no mistake, it is one of the most important issues in energy regulation today. How should regional grids in the United States treat bundled services from distributed energy? It's a question that federal energy authorities have been trying to answer over the last couple of days at a technical conference in Washington. Catherine was there. She's going to give us the scuttlebutt. So uh, remind us what this conference was all about. It's the result of a long political fight that may be pretty familiar to our listeners. Yeah, so this was originally combined, distributed energy resources was combined into an energy storage docket, whereupon they were going to consider how do we let energy storage and distributed energy resources participate in the wholesale markets? Well, they decided that they really needed to tease out DER. And so they went ahead and did a ruling for energy storage, 
Order 841. And they split apart this distributed energy resources because this dealt with many more behind the meter resources and resources that have typically just been the purview of utilities and try to figure out, all right, how do we now tease out, how do we compensate distributed resources and allow them to participate in the wholesale markets. So that was what they were trying to do is let's bring everybody together. They had seven panels with eight speakers per panel just to ask questions and to have a conversation. And it was a really fruitful, beneficial conversation because it wasn't just having people submit separate comments. It was really having a conversation, being able to ask a lot of questions and then rebuttals. And so I thought it was an extremely beneficial and fruitful conversation. So what kind of aggregated juicy fruit were they chewing on over there? Uh, <laughs> big red, big red. So the issue is uh, that distributed energy resources have been being developed. They're developed in diff- at different rates, obviously, different speeds in different states, depending on state policy. But if you look at the wholesale market, a lot of that hasn't happened yet because it's not really allowed to yet. So some of the system operators say, especially in the Midwest, you know, we're going to need 10 more years to study this. We need to take time and figure it out. And Commissioner LaFleur said, we're going to skip the tenure of studying part and we're just going to go ahead and try to figure this out now because these resources are being developed. And if we don't get ahead of it, they're going to find workarounds. For example, here's a workaround, PERPA. We already have a lot of DERs out there because of PERPA, and PERPA was really a workaround to the utility monopoly. So why don't we figure out how to get ahead of ourselves now and come up with some rules and ways to really suss out the differences between wholesale and retail? And everybody agreed that it's happening, that we have to do something, that we need visibility so I, the ISOs, the system operators, need visibility into what is happening on the distribution side, the retail side, although they don't need as much visibility as the utility needs because the utility is dealing with what's happening in neighborhoods, whereas the ISOs are dealing with what's happening on the transmission system. So they need different gradations of visibility and different amounts of it, but they need to coordinate They need to make sure that there is an ability to to aggregate so that systems that are on the edge of the grid, you know, whether it's behind the meter storage or solar, that those can then be brought up into wholesale markets and that states are given a lot of flexibility in whether they are comfortable with their consumers being able to participate in both markets. So, yeah, I I was reading the utility dive in GTM, um, sort of reporting on it. And uh, it was interesting. It did seem like some of the utilities basically said, like, you really need our permission to be able to add this stuff to the grid. I mean, and I mean, isn't that sort of a non-starter? Well, it can be. I think what what the innovators want to happen is for FERC to give distributed energy resources permission to participate in wholesale markets. And I'll give you an example of one that has, so Act 129 in Pennsylvania allowed customers to participate both in state programs, and these were state demand response programs. And then those programs were aggregated by utilities like Baltimore Gas and Electric 
into the wholesale market. So in Pennsylvania, it's worked really well. They've been able to figure that out. There are really two pieces that have to be figured out. One is just a math piece, an accounting piece. Like how do you count the values and where do you count the values? Where, you know, where is that resource doing what when is it is it being used on the wholesale side or the retail side? That's an accounting issue of like who gets oh, but paid. D- but then the other is but that'll get solved by like blockchain smart grid internet. Well, it could be, <laughs> or we could come up with other accounting procedures. Those are some platforms. The other issue is operations. So there's you know what is really happening operationally from the utility and from the ISOs perspective. So those are two different streams that we have to work on, and everybody agreed that. It's not impossible. This is a solvable issue. We just have to be really, we have to really take this step by step and do it. And yet we can't take too long to do it because it's happening anyway. And DERs are going to find a workaround and they're going to deploy because customers want this and they want these services. And, and these services don't just, you know, part of the issue is creating the, the narrative that, oh, all these DERs are going to cause problems. Well, what the DER community is saying is, wait, these aren't problems. These are solutions. We're providing benefits to the grid. So our benefits include reduced cost, improved consumer engagement, consumer choice, improved reliability and resilience because you have all these resources on the edge of the grid. We just have to figure out the accounting and the operations to make sure that they're they're all working together. Well, you hit on something that I've been curious about, and that's the tone coming out of the conversation. Is there a, is the tone of the conversation still up for grabs? Like, are there people out there warning that these resources are dangerous to the health of the grid, or have we moved past that? So there's some utilities that are saying that. Most of them are co-ops and municipal utilities that um, are, are saying, you, you know, we don't want this to cause increased costs. We don't want to have safety issues. But I think for the most part, people are open to this. They're seeing the benefits. For example, Portland General Electric said, look, we saved $1.2 billion by avoiding building a transmission line by using DER non-wires alternatives. And that was something that came up several times are these alternatives to having to do T and D infrastructure. Let's, let's not have to build another substation. Let's not have to build another transmission line by using distributed energy resources. And, and utilities are more and more understanding the benefit, the cost benefit to the system. Right. But did they not understand the cost benefit before? Like, was it like, oh my God, we had a Eureka moment. It seems to me like, it's it. They just have two sides of the house, right? On the one side, they're like, here's a big press release we can provide with the $1.2 billion in savings. But on the other side of the house, they're saying, actually, we kind of still want to ram all these distributed like substation uh, upgrades and distribution circuit upgrades, et cetera, because that's how we make our money. Yeah, that was not the dynamic here. This was really information gathering from the commission to say, What's your experience with these resources? And so they were not talking about all those other things they're trying to do, which happen at the state PUCs, as we very well know. But this was really kind of digging into what are the questions? Can you do 
dual participation? Can you participate in the retail and wholesale markets at the same time? And what does that mean? And is it confusing? And are you getting double paid? Which no, that is completely solvable. You can be doing things differently at different times and providing different services. And in fact, that's much better for both sides of the grid. It's better for the consumer and it lowers costs and increases reliability. I jokingly at the beginning of this conversation brought up the Mark Zuckerberg hearings, but I actually think they're relevant because it was quite compelling to listen to questions from um, both senators and uh, House members over the last couple of days to hear how they're trying to figure out how to regulate Facebook, if they should regulate Facebook, what Facebook is, right? And uh, like, is it a media company? Is it a journalism outfit? Is it a financial services company? Is it just a social networking platform? Is it a tech company? There are all these things that could be uh, simultaneously or individually. And um, the same is true for like what these DER aggregators will be. Given we're dealing with a much more sophisticated crowd, these are the grid operators, these are the providers, these are the regulators. So you know, I know we're operating in a different context, but the same question is true. Like, what are these companies? And therefore, how do you guide the rules accordingly? Do, do you get the sense that we're still at a kind of a fundamental level, of, like really answering those basic questions? Well, it's interesting because you different grid operators have seen different levels of penetration. So Cal ISO has seen a lot more penetration of distributed energy resources, obviously, in California, in New York. They're sort of starting to see more, but there still hasn't been more very much. MISO has seen nothing. And part of that is because they already have opt-out for states on demand response. So they're not used to aggregation anyway. It's forbidden in most of those states. And so the issue is, how do we then bring them along and prepare the conditions such that when they do start seeing more of these resources coming in that we will already know how to operate them and how to account for them. And the MISO state folks are really starting to move forward. So one of the witnesses was Chairman Ted Thomas from Arkansas. And he said, look, my state's moving forward on DERs. We have a docket open, but maybe you should give states the right to opt out. The ability, you know, FERC, give people the benefit. Make sure that DERs, as as uh, Commissioner Glick says, he believes the Federal Power Act requires FERC to allow for distributed energy resources to have the wholesale market av- available to them and be able to compete in that market. And Chairman Thomas said, at least let states that aren't there yet opt out and, and allow them to decide which customers are able to be in the retail, in the wholesale, wholesale markets, and then, or both. So I think that we're going to come forward with something. FERC is going to do something. They're going to, they're going to allow for comments and they're in any kind of proceeding, they'll, any order rulemaking that they have, they're going to try to parse that. So they're going to try to make sure my sense that they let DERs have access to the wholesale market, but then also give states the ability to do what they need to, to come along. Well, bless your heart for spending the last couple of days there and sharing us your insights. It did sound pretty interesting. I know the topic can, um, you know, a technical conference can seem exhausting, but uh, I heard from numerous people, including you, that it was a really fascinating discussion. So that's a good sign. Well, let's, uh, let's grab our free electron and share it with our audience. Jigger, what is yours this week? Well, so, you know, going off of this FERC conversation, you know, as, as you know, my, um, 
my optimism is very muted when it comes to the ability for these things to happen at that level. But I was really pleased to see that uh, a couple of DC uh, uh, council members have, have just dropped legislation that creates a DER authority, an independent entity that will add transparency to the planning process of electric utility company. Um, you know, to show you how important this is, Pepco went apoplectic, which is awesome. And basically what it requires is that every single capital expenditure that Pepco makes on the grid now has to be subject to an RFP for DERs. So what are the implications? Well, it just means that now you have an have like a forced discovery period every time. So every time Pepco says, I want to spend $100 million or $1 million on something, somebody that can do it through Internet of Things technologies or Nest thermostats or, you know, like, or uh, strategically placed natural gas engines um, can now compete with Pepco on that upgrade. Yeah, that's been the whole um, mission of trying to make sure that all these non-wires alternatives are on the menu of options. That's what we've been trying to do with integrated resource planning in states that are fu- have fully integrated utilities is like, don't just look at where you're going to build your next, next gas plant, but what are all the other options out there? So that's great. Yeah, so I'm, I'm very psyched about seeing, you know, how this plays out. I think... Uh, I think Pepco will lose this one, but we'll see. Catherine, share us your free electron. Yeah, so meanwhile, in South Carolina, um, there was a vote to remove caps on the state's residential solar market, and I'm sure that the politics are just very deep, and I don't understand them all. But what they did was uh, the final vote, These this cap removal won, but then the legislature changed it so that they had to get two thirds of a vote for this particular provision to pass. And so it went down in a defeat. Um, The final vote was 61 to 44 in favor and it still lost, which is horrible. Um, But then I have to bring myself up by looking at Apple getting and Google also getting a hundred percent renewables and pushing on their suppliers. So there is good being done out there too. I've got a story that I'm not actually sure what to make of. I saw yesterday that, there's this 150 megawatt coal-fired power station in Australia that is actually being fired back up. It was closed in 2014, and the power plant operator is now firing the power plant back up and bringing in a cryptocurrency mining company to sit inside basically the power plant and use the power, uh, bringing an entirely new meaning to behind-the-meter energy. And the, the the plant itself actually won't be feeding the grid that I can tell based on, on what I've seen in the reporting that it, it's actually just going to be feeding this cryptocurrency mining operation. Um, it, well, it's, 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 a, it's a huge problem. I think it's less of a problem today than it was before. But I mean, I've been approached several times by people saying, is there you know, a whole uh, solar system or a wind system that's selling wholesale power that you know, uh, wants us to co-locate, you know, a Bitcoin mining operation. I think now that Bitcoin's back down to $8,000 a coin, like there's less of a payback in it. But um, but yeah, no, it's not how um, voracious these guys are. Let's get stat oil on that. A new term, CCS, cryptocurrency capture and storage. <laughs> I, I think we need, we need regulation. You know, we need regulation. They can only be powered by CCS. <laughs> That's all, folks. Um, if you want to 
share this episode, throw it out on Twitter, or send it to your friends and colleagues. Um, we can be contacted at podcasts at greentechmedia.com, although the best way to get us is on Twitter usually. We like to interact with folks and hear what they're asking us. If you have show ideas, send them via Twitter as well, and maybe we'll get to some of those. Get our podcast anywhere you get your podcasts, Apple, Stitcher, NPR One, uh, tune in on Amazon Alexa, Spotify, Google Play, you name it. And uh, thanks to Catherine and Jigger. Catherine, enjoy the rest of your week. Thanks. It's not going to snow this week. <laughs> yeah, this has been the endless winter. It's, we, it's basically been a November through middle of April winter for us here in Boston. So I'm looking forward to a warmer weekend. Jigger, um, good luck with finishing up your project over there. Yeah, I'm also going to the Tom Tom Festival in Charlottesville. So I'll uh, you know tell you guys how that goes. Cool. Have fun. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey. We're the Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next week. 